0: Howdy friends! I'm Kaylee Wilpink, a small town country girl from Arizona who's landed in the big city of Los Angeles, California. Welcome to another episode of my podcast, Cowgirl in LA. Come along as I share the lessons that I've learned along the way and as I continue to figure out who the fuck I am and where the fuck I fit in. It's a messy wild ride, so strap in! Hi, Stephanie. Welcome to Cowgirl in LA. Hi, Kaylee. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited that you're here. So for those of you who don't know, I work in advertising. I grew up on a ranch in Arizona, which is in Apache County. And I grew up in the Mormon church, very spiritual. And now I live in LA. And of course, I love astrology and all of these woo-woo things. And so as you can imagine, my TikTok feed is mostly filled with a sprinkling of all of those things. And I came across a TikTok from Stephanie talking about woo-woo capitalism and she was offering a course on it. She is, correct me if I'm wrong, a college professor. I'm a former college professor. Former college professor. And I loved college. I loved taking lectures. I was like, sign me up. Like I saw the TikTok and I was like, I want to take her course on woo-woo capitalism. And I'm so glad that I did because it was so much great content and so much great information. And I was like, all of my podcast listeners need to learn from Stephanie and hear about all of these things. And so I emailed her and I was like, Hi, by chance, would you um, like to be on my podcast? And she emailed back right away. and She was like, of course. And I am so happy and we're we're doing it. So welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Kaylee. As I was saying to you earlier, I'm very attached to you. You're one of my first students. And as a <laughs> teacher, I'm always in awe. I love seeing how my students absorb the knowledge, internalize it, make it their own, and how you're able to take what we're talking about, spiritual capitalism, all these different themes, toxic spirituality, the themes that we break down in our class, and how you're making that relevant to you, to yourself, to your communities, and how you're going on to teach your communities as well. This is so important for us to have these conversations and for us to deconstruct what the hell is going on in the spiritual world.
0: Yes, I love it. Could you give a bit of an intro to who you are? Where did you grow up? I would love to hear your personal origin story.
1: Absolutely. So I'm Stephanie and I'm Lebanese Egyptian. My dad is Lebanese. I was actually born in Lebanon and I lived there till I was six years old. I was born right in the wake of the Lebanese civil war. So Lebanon had like a 25 year civil war that absolutely ravaged the country. And I was born like right at the tail end of that. Like I think 93 is when it officially ended. I was born in 92. So I grew up in a country that was really messed up, like buildings, buildings, destroyed covered in bullets and the country was really divided and I'm still processing like what that meant and what that means for me and what that looks like and how that's affected me but we left in when I was six and we moved to Dubai both my parents are academics so academia actually kind of runs deeply in my blood my grandma's also an academic it is so interesting because they've all studied like we're all people of color in, in my family like my dad's Lebanese my mom's Egyptian And everyone studied Western thought. Like my dad is a a professor of philosophy and his specialty was Bertrand Russell, who's like a British philosopher. And my mom taught and specialized in Chaucer. And my grandma specialized and taught 18th century French philosophy, like Diderot. And so it's interesting because I come up in this academic world and I'm not really interested in Western thought. Like I want to study North African thinkers and Poets and folks who've actually challenged colonization. Frantz Fanon, a Martinican thinker and psychiatrist who really challenged like colonial thinking, is one of my favorite and most important thinkers. And so is Sylvia Winter, also Caribbean thinker, philosopher, who's absolutely amazing. So it's kind of interesting because I like, I'm a little bit of an anomaly in my family because I'm like, I don't care about Western philosophers. They suck. Although I have studied them very closely, I have a degree in political theory and I spent six years and a PhD at Johns Hopkins University studying political theory. Political theory is basically like political thought, it's kind of like philosophy, but specializing in politics. So, as part of my training, it's a very Eurocentric training. Like, we study like Plato and Aristotle and Machiavelli, and these are all thinkers that I know really well and I, I could teach in a college setting. Nietzsche, you know, all these people. And I actually also spent a lot of time studying Hobbes and Locke. And these are like 18th century British philosophers. But then I started moving more into more critical thinkers and looking at capitalism and colonialism and thinkers who've actually challenged these things, such as Marx. And as I was saying earlier, Fanon and Sylvia Winter. It's actually really important to study both the reason why Western philosophy has issues And look at why it's also shaped our society super deeply. But to go back to your initial question, I grew up in Lebanon, I grew up in the Emirates in Dubai. And when I was 13, I moved to Montreal. And I feel like Montreal, this is where it's my home. Montreal is where I belong. I moved here when I was 13 years old and really loved the independence that I got. Like At 13, you don't really want your parents driving you places. I had the metro right next to me. So I was able to just hop on a metro and meet my friends and like go downtown shopping, stuff like that. So I have a really good connection to Montreal. And then I moved to Chapel Hill for my undergrad, actually. I've lived in the States for the last 10 years and I went to UNC Chapel Hill. So I'm a Tar Heel. (laughs) (laughs) Chapel Hill is my alma mater. And then I moved to Baltimore to start my PhD. That took six years and then I ended up quitting at the very end, like I was this close to finishing, but I just couldn't do it anymore. The environment was so toxic and really draining. And I felt very unappreciated and undervalued. And I was like, why am I doing this? I don't need to be doing this. I don't need to be suffering for the sake of like growing intellectually and studying. I keep doing these things outside of this environment where I feel very suffocated. And that's exactly what happened. I, I left last year. I've been on a sabbatical. I've been still figuring out what to do. Not really sure, but I've been able to find an avenue for that political creativity on TikTok where I'm able to create content where I'm political and philosophical and we go really deep, but without that like structure, that stuffy structure of academia. And I actually think it's so important to make knowledge accessible outside of these academic structures. So the courses I offer, there are things that I've taught in university, but instead of you know teaching it in this very closed environment where kids are having access to it in like this elite university setting, I'm able to offer them in a format that's like way more humane and, and nurturing. There's no grades. I'm not assessing anybody. I'm not punishing anybody. There's no assignments that you need to submit. Although, you know, if students want to submit an essay, I will happily look over it. <laughs> so that's, I think that's a little bit, uh, a
0: little bit about me. About I loved I your course, firstly. I loved college. Growing up, I was the first person actually to go to college in my family for like generations. So it was like a very new experience for me. And I absolutely ate it up. I've spoken about this in some of my previous episodes, but I accidentally took a class on feminism. It was called gender communication. And I thought it was just about how like boys and girls talk differently. And it ended up just being about feminism and like, how are women's voices centered in the world? And it really got me thinking about that, but specifically in the Mormon church. Mm. And they were asking questions. And I was the type of student that would like come to class and I would be like, well, let me prove that I'm right. And like, I was very conservative, very Christian, very religious. And so I was like, Feminism? No. Let me tell you why feminism is, you know, in my naive little like 21-year-old brain. And the professor asked, how do women's voices show up in your world? And I took that and I was like looking at the Mormon church and I was like, oh, women don't have voices. Like they're not allowed to speak. They're allowed, but they're not given a platform or a place to speak. And like, what would the world benefit from if women were able to actually talk about their lived experiences? Like right now, all we hear about is men's lived experiences, but what about women? And that got me just like thinking and thinking and thinking about so many things. I started deconstructing the church and it took about like three years of just like really intensive study of the Bible and the Book of Mormon. To be like, oh, no, I don't think that Joseph Smith is a prophet of God. I think that he actually was like wanting to make money and like have power. And so he convinced people that he was a prophet of God. And now 200 years later, there's this giant basically corporation that sits on billions of dollars and kind of like capitalizing on people's spirituality. And that doesn't sit right with me. And so anyways, this is something that I've been like deep dive studying for so long. And now that I've graduated college, I'm like, where do I continue this? I want to continue learning about things. I want to continue doing this. I don't have time to go back to school. I don't have money to go back to school. And so I agree with you, TikTok. I feel like it is such a great middle ground. And especially growing up rural and pretty poor, there are so many people who the next step in helping them reach greater potential is education. And it's just like not very accessible for people in rural communities. Internet is like just barely getting to a place where people can actually like do online school, you know. So I think that what you're doing is super, super valuable and super, super needed And I'm just excited to continue the conversation outside of TikTok. Yeah, thank you. I'm
1: so happy. I'm so happy to be here and to support you on your journey as well. You know, I feel like grad school ends up attracting a lot of people who are interested in learning more, who have that hunger to learn. That's exactly what happened to me. I graduated from undergrad and I had just started, you know, learning about all these things like feminism and decolonization and liberation what that looks like and power. And I was like, there's no way I can end here. I have to keep going. And, you know, I don't regret grad school. I wouldn't be who I am right now. I wouldn't be the thinker or the writer that I am without grad school really pushing me. Hopkins is one of the highest rated programs for political theory. And it's a really tough one, which is why most people in that department are white men. A lot of like really tough environments end up being super dominated by white men. And the women... And the queer people are minorities and the space isn't really designed for their well-being. It's just kind of like you either exist and you survive in that space or you drop out. And most of the people who have dropped out have been white women, women of color and queer people. That includes me. I'm I'm not, I'm like a statistic, but it's also like what happened to me, my lived experience. And I have a lot of privilege. Like I literally come from a family of academics. So they know exactly what I went through and they were supporting me through that process. I can't imagine what it's like for the grad students who are first gen or who have families that don't really understand the trials and tribulations. So this is all to say that if I could go back in time, the thing that I would say to my younger self who is like so thirsty for knowledge is that knowledge does not only exist in academia. I think part of the marketing and the aura of academia is that it's like this Like you just open the door and then all of a sudden you get all this knowledge. It's the image we have, but that's gatekeeping. Knowledge and learning and courses and being a forever student. Going to grad school is not the only way to continue learning, especially not when it comes at the cost of mental health, of the financial cost of it, the emotional cost of it, and also like the time cost of it. I spent most of my 20s in grad school. The only job I've ever had was to be a teacher. Which is part of the whole identity crisis that i 've experienced this entire year that i've been on a sabbatical that i 've left it's like i don 't know what to do outside of this. this is my entire identity is wrapped up with studying and teaching and mentoring like i don 't know what else to do, and so I had to kind of rebuild who I was outside of this because it's just defined me since I was like a young kid so yeah that's also to reinforce your point is that you don 't need grad school to continue learning, especially that I think the more universities become like a hostile place and difficult place to thrive, I think we're going to see more and more freelance professors and just like intellectuals that are not associated to university, but have a lot to offer and to teach. Just kind of like, you know, folks like me that might be offering courses and things like that outside of it, but with the same caliber and the same level of rigor that you would get in a college course, but not with the gatekeeping. Mm-hmm. And not with like the, the stuffiness and the assessments. I, I It was very hard for me to grade students, especially like when we hit COVID and I saw how burnt out everybody was. I was like, I just want to give you all A's. I don't really believe in grading. I believe in improvement. I believe in like constructive feedback. But does it have to be associated to a grade and like feeling competitive that only a few people are going to get A's and like that distribution of grades? I just felt so uncomfortable with it.
0: Yeah and i think what you're talking about i've been thinking a lot about like what do you do when the system fails you all of these systems and organizations that we rely on as a society are failing us and have been failing us for a long time like what do we do when that happens and i think what you're doing is what needs to happen like we need to like i don't know get creative and do mm-hmm. something about it and i think that across all industries, I see that with all of the people that I know who are either experts or like super passionate about what they do. They're like, well, this system isn't working for me or the people that it's supposed to be helping. So I guess I'll try and like do it. And I feel like that's kind of where the beauty of mutual aid is, is that it's like, well, there are actual people that need actual help like right now. What can we do to get them help right now. And there's so much power in that. And so I just appreciate what you're doing. I'm sure it is scary to go out on a limb like that. But I'm grateful that you're making your knowledge and experience more accessible to me. And I just think as a whole, we're going to start seeing more of that in the next few years. I think so too, especially
1: because even being an academic at this point is a very hard job. It's highly underpaid just like teachers you know Mm -hmm. of any level in education whether it's like you know younger kids or older or even college it's just so grossly underpaid I think for me I'm also Leo like I like to be appreciated and I felt so unappreciated in that space and I was like you know what I deserve better Mm -hmm. it took me a while to get there and actually like spirituality was part of what helped me feel empowered to navigate feeling so trapped. I was feeling so trapped in grad school and I was feeling so burnt out. And the thing is like with an institution like that, like navigating an institution that is so white and masculine and capitalistic, it's really very extractive. It has a way of eroding my self-esteem. I really felt eroded. There came a point where I felt like I had nothing to offer. I felt worthless. I felt lost. And that's also why I stayed for so long. I really feel like I started Withering and feeling unhappy as of year four, and I left at year six. So I stuck around, not really knowing what I was doing. And it's around that time that I also started becoming more interested in spirituality because the premise of spirituality is to connect to our spirit, it's to connect to our bodies. And I was living in my head so much, I was like literally my brain was so tired of intellectual activity. Is it even sustainable for someone to be using any muscle? Because the brain's a muscle, you know? Okay. I was so tired. I was like, well, we don't tell athletes to train at the gym all day, every day. But then I have this dissertation and I have to teach and I have to take classes and read. And it's my brain is being used at every moment. And even when I'm resting, I feel guilty about resting. I was very drawn to the message, which is like drop into your body, ground, I kind of started with doing yoga, and yoga was very helpful because I felt like I was able for a few times a week, for a few hours a week, just kind of forget and disconnect from everything I was feeling and just breathe and connect to my body. And there was that like immediate satisfaction in the sense of I was seeing my progress. I was seeing my body improve in certain poses in a way that, you know, with PhD work, you don't really see the progress right away. I mean, it's over years and years. And, If that, you know, so I started becoming more and more interested in spirituality as a result of my disconnection and of my burnout and living so much in my brain. I love that. I want to
0: hear more. Keep going. Okay. okay, okay. I feel like you've left me (laughs) on the edge of my seat.
1: (laughs) Um, Like, I I want want to know know. all of the details.
0: Like, now you want to know all the details.
1: Well, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, it started. So it started with yoga and then it slowly moved into. Astrology and tarot. I've always been into astrology. I've been interested in it, but it kind of escalated at that time where I was feeling burnt out and I was feeling trapped. This was also around the same time that I came out to my family as queer. And I was experiencing a lot of rejection from them. They were struggling to accept that reality. Even though they're pretty liberal parents, I was really surprised how much they struggled with it. And Now five years later, after my coming out, they're much more open and comfortable, and they love my partner. And I feel like we've reached a really good place. So I'm revisiting that pain, but it doesn't feel so painful anymore because things have gotten a lot better. But I remember feeling really lost and rejected and lonely and ashamed because it was like, well, if my parents don't love me, then am I even worthy of love? Like it was so confusing. So astrology and tarot, I turned to it with almost like an urgency. Like I needed, it's like I needed to know I was going to be okay. And these were the only things I knew that might give me some answers. So I consulted an astrologer, I consulted tarot readers. And basically my question was like, will I be okay? Because I feel so, so lost and so stuck and so lonely and isolated. And of course their answer was that I was going to be okay. Astrology basically was saying like, Because of the placements in my chart, like there was going to be like family conflict. And, you know, I'm kind of like the pioneer, the troublemaker in the family here to disrupt generational patterns. And I was like, okay, but like that sucks. (laughs) So, anyway, all this to say that there was a congruence of multiple factors that made me interested and almost like ready for what spirituality had to say. The first thing was like that connection to self, which I felt really disconnected. And then with the tools like astrology and tarot, the idea was like, okay, you're going to be okay. Just like keep going. There's going to be some struggles, but part of the struggles is you're here to learn some lessons. You're here to do some work with your family, with generational patterns.
0: As a logical thinker and like an academic, did you have trouble trying to like logically explain astrology and tarot? Oh, that's a good question. Actually, not at all. I felt like I was so hurt and
1: damaged by the extent of critical thinking that I welcomed this paradigm where critical thinking was kind of put on the back burner And it was like, you know what? In spirituality, there are certain things that don't make sense analytically and logically. And I was like, you know what? Great, because I don't want to be logical right now. I'm so tired of using my logical brain. I want to take a break from that. So I really, I found refuge in these tools. And I was like, you know what? Astrology, tarot, these are really old systems that have been in place too. And like part of colonization, part of like the Western obsession with rationality is to reject these tools that are mystical because the mystical and the occult is not rational. So, I was also doing some of that work in my dissertation. I was researching the rise of witch hunts in Renaissance Europe. And I was looking at how philosophers like Hobbes were attacking the occult in their writings. So, I was interested in this Western attack on the occult because when you look at like pre 18th Enlightenment philosophy, there is room in European thought. There is room for the occult. It hasn't yet been completely excised. So there's room for for magic. But starting with, you know, the witch hunts, which started pretty early in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. So they really like spiked in the Renaissance, like 16th century. So.
0: Could you give more information about that? Because I personally am really interested in witchy things. Yeah. And I know I have a few followers as well who are interested in that. And I haven't done too much digging on the history of witch hunts and everything, but I'm super interested if you have extra info to share there.
1: Yeah, of course. So witch hunts began in like as early as the 1200s, 1300s. They're very period, like uh, localized. They weren't this widespread mass hysteria, mass femicide. Why were they being hunted? That's a very good question that a lot of historians have been asking and offering explanations. So you have different explanations. You have like an economic explanation. So for instance, an author, a thinker, a Marxist feminist thinker like Silvia Federici, whose book I really recommend, it's called Caliban and the Witch. And it's about her thesis is as capitalism was rising and and emerging in Europe, The witch hunts were a mechanism of social control to push women into domesticity and into the domestic sphere. Because until then, pre-capitalism, in feudal Europe, women had more space to exist in different ways. They were connected to their communities this is like the definition of the gossip. The the gossip knew everything that was going on everywhere in the village. She was connected. She was the center. She knew everything, right? This is also when you had medicine women who knew about family planning, who knew about abortive plants, how to use medicine, obstetrics. Their specialty was, you know, like birthing. This is with the midwives. So there were a lot of ways in which women existed that were not just like, Domestic mothers who were in the home. But with the rise of capitalism, the emphasis became on confining women into the domestic sphere so that they can produce children that would be part of the workforce, be part of the wage labor workforce. So, this is one argument. This is uh, an economic analysis. You have other historians offering a religious analysis, you know, like the conflict between Protestantism and Catholicism being kind of embodied or congealing on this attack against women. A lot of the women who were being hunted and accused of witchcraft were these older women who spoke Latin, who didn't speak English. They were connected to a religion that was that was not the religion that was being pushed. And then there was also like a lot of heresy in Europe at that time. And so a lot of the areas in which the witch hunts happened were also areas that had heresy and heretic movement. So anyway, there's like a lot of different factors that could explain. Of course, we can't go back in time and say exactly why. But the other lens that I would add is let's look at the consequences of this. You know, we may not have the exact answer as to why. It's probably a conflation of a lot of things. And it's hard to single out one specific reason. But what are the consequences? What have we inherited from this now? And that is the creation and the production of controlling women, putting them and confining them into this domestic sphere and masculinizing a lot of things that used to belong to the women's realms. So for instance, obstetrics after that point became a male-dominated field because it was up to men to start controlling women's bodies and to be in charge of the science. The medical knowledge, the plant knowledge that women had Was being erased. And there were real consequences to this. If you showed that you knew plant medicine, you ran the risk of being accused of being a witch. So there were real consequences for that. So there's like this form of internal policing that started happening as well. So if you deviated in any way, if you showed that you were empowered or that you left the house or that you didn't marry or you didn't have children, if you didn't kind of like follow the rules of what was expected for womanhood. There was always that threat or that trauma of like what happened to those women before you that were punished for exhibiting ways of existing that did not fall into this very like strict way of this strict expectation. So that, of course, really impacted and shaped like gender roles, which is why in my gender workshop, we talk about gender roles as a form of social control, the institution of patriarchy, the way women continue to be controlled. We just talked about this in my gender workshop because we were unpacking the divine feminine and the divine masculine and really diving into that language in spirituality, which you know can seem feminist at first, but when you unpack it, a lot of it revolves around the male gaze and attracting men. And there isn't much analysis of gender roles and why they exist and how society and this is not my language this is from Adrian Rich who's an amazing lesbian poet from like was active like 60s 70s 80s so Adrian Rich writes this essay called compulsory heteronormativity we live in a society where it's almost kind of like compulsory there's no other option it's so taboo to exist in another way And there are real consequences for choosing another existence that doesn't fit into this heteronormative framework. So it's the same thing with divine feminine. There is this unexamined, unquestioned heteronormativity in that language. Even though sometimes you see spaces embrace divine feminine in a way that is a little bit more queer or disruptive, it is mostly reinforcing gender roles. And gender roles need to be viewed as an institution of social control for women. Like As long as we're not talking about how gender roles for women are limiting and confining, then the divine feminine is going to contribute to that. Especially when the divine feminine encourages women to be soft and to be, you know, connected to nature and to their intuition. Those are all great things in principle, but if we're not analyzing how that fits into the broader and historical, like, control of women, then we... Basically, run the risk of telling women that they're going to be happier and healthier if they're in the home and in the domestic sphere, which of course maps onto sexism. And so, this is exactly how we find ourselves like slipping into the alt right and neoconservative ideas of what femininity looks like. This happens a lot when we start unpacking New Age constructs; like they seem progressive or they seem attractive for you know specific reasons, and then you start unpacking and digging, and you're like, oh. I understand now why there's a new age to far right pipeline because there's like many points of entry. Like you'll come in thinking, oh yeah, I want to connect to my softer side because I feel so exhausted and burnt out and patriarchy has made me feel really disconnected from my feminine. And then you start connecting to your feminine and next thing you know, you're being told that like being in the domestic sphere or like being a mom is like the entire purpose of your life. So that's the pipeline that we want to push back. And it's important to look at the history. It's important to look at actual feminist thinkers, what they say, what they argue, because otherwise we just, we don't question and we fall into that pipeline.
0: And that's exactly what I, like once I moved to LA, so I didn't leave the Mormon church until I actually got to LA. I was living in Salt Lake City, Utah before then. And I felt really nervous about leaving the church. In Utah, because my whole social group was revolving around the church. So I was like, it would be social suicide for me to leave the Mormon church here. So I was like, I'll move to LA. LA feels like a safe place for me to leave the Mormon church, explore everything that I've been wanting to explore. And that's what I did. Like, I loved the Mormon church and I started going to these workshops and these classes and yoga. And I was going to all of these places where these like, super woo woo people were at. And there was so much of it that I felt connected to like astrology and tarot and like, obviously, witch things like I love learning about all those things. And I felt very similar in the sense that like, I felt like it was helped like astrology gave me this other world to like make sense of what's happening for me and it was great and awesome but again as I was going into these groups and these workshops and people are talking about manifesting wealth and stuff like that I was like wait but like is wealth really what the end goal is. For me, I know I need money to like survive and pay my rent. But like, I'm not trying to become Jeff Bezos. Like I'm just trying to pay my bills and like, and make sure that everybody around me has the resources to like, just live a normal, happy, healthy life. And then from there, any extra would be great. But like, That's not my end goal is like manifesting wealth. But I feel like that's a lot of the conversation that's happening in LA right now that I see within like spiritual communities in LA is there's like a lot of talk about manifestation, but specifically like manifesting wealth. And I just, alarm bells kind of go off for me. And I'm like, wait, let's just deconstruct that as a whole, manifesting wealth, because that seems kind of like repackaged. Capitalism and all of these things that you're exactly pointing to. A hundred percent. Absolutely. So manifesting
1: wealth is one of the themes I unpack extensively on my TikTok because I actually think it's a little bit predatory to tell people I have the answer for you about how to manifest wealth in this world because they're not talking about capitalism. They're actually like purposely I mean, I don't know how purposeful it is. It might just be like absolute ignorance, but we live in capitalism and capitalism is a system where inequality is built into it. So when we work, we create a ton of wealth, but we just get a wage. This is how capitalism works. So you might be like, for instance, you work in advertising. You're probably creating so much wealth for your company, way more than what you'll ever see in your bank account in form of your salary. That's how capitalism works. Who's getting that wealth? The owner. So, the owner, the CEO, the company is collecting all of that because this is how capitalism works. It's like if you come up with the idea, if you come up with the resources, with the capital to start something, then you deserve all of the wealth that other people are creating for you. That's the structure of the owner versus worker employee.
0: Well, and on top of that, specifically in my field of work, my job is to manage my client's money, run ads for them, and then report at the end of the month how much money I made them. So for example, I have anywhere from like 10 to 15 clients that I'm making $500,000 per month for them based off of the ads that I am running for them. And like, they don't necessarily pay me, they pay the agency and the agency pays me. But at the end of the day, I am directly responsible for making sure that I use that money in a way that makes them more money. And it's just like a mind fuck, honestly. Like, honestly, my job in and of itself has been what's helped me deconstruct capitalism, because I think there's a lot of people in my sphere of influence who are like, well, capitalism is good. Like we're able to like grow economy and it's needed and all these things. I'm like, I understand where that's coming from, but there's something broken in this like little wheel that I live in where like I'm making companies millions of dollars every year, but I'm getting paid a salary from the agency that I'm part of. And like, even if I got 1% of what I'm making all of those companies, like, I would be set, you know, but mm-hmm. it's just it's interesting.
1: You're experiencing exactly that structure. The way that capitalism is set up is like this. And we accept it because there is a naturalization of capitalism. We've existed in capitalism since like maybe the 1500s, 1600s, like, you know, capitalism does not have a clear start to it. It, it took a while for it to develop and grow out of feudalism. So this is why history is important because it's important to remember that capitalism is not the only system that has ever existed. It's a very specific system that we live in, but it really has taken a hold of our imagination. And it's taken a hold over how we understand ourselves in this world, so much so that it becomes almost impossible to picture a world outside of capitalism. Like if we're here to try to challenge capitalism and and like, take it down, it feels almost impossible because it's like, well, how, how do we, where do we even begin? And that's because it really has taken hold of how we see ourselves, how we relate to each other. Internalized capitalism is a huge thing as well. It's important to remember all these things and mm-hmm. remember that it is possible to challenge capitalism. And sometimes even if it's a small thing that we can do. So for instance, for me, like I try to do sliding scale for my offers, or I won't turn anyone away for lack of funds. Being connected socially and not think in terms of this hyper individualistic perspective as well. Capitalism is rooted in this idea that we're all like little atoms, you know, like circulating and exchanging with each other. But we don't have to think in this atomized way. If we think with more connectiveness, if we connect to each other, and each other that's also a way to challenge capitalism to share the wealth you know share with each other so if someone has more we give more as opposed to we all give the same amount that's why i also like sliding scale i like having the option for those who can give more to give more so that the people who can only give a certain amount can feel comfortable giving that and everyone's still deserving everyone's still great everyone still deserves access so these are all small ways to challenge the system and to push our imaginations to move beyond capitalism. So then when you have an entire spiritual niche that is telling people that they can manifest millions, to me, it just it's a cheat code and it's a get-rich-quick scam over anything because there is no get-rich-quick in capitalism. And those who do get rich quick are either super lucky or already have the resources and the privilege to get rich quick. You know, like I'm sure that if we did a little bit of digging, those who claim that they've had multiple millions in their business in the first year of starting, it's probably not their first business. They've probably failed a lot and tried a lot of things before succeeding, but they're not telling you that. So they're selling an image of what success means and they're selling a shortcut. And of course, that's going to sell. When you sell someone a shortcut, people are going to eat it up because folks are exhausted in capitalism. People work really hard for a wage that does not accurately reflect the wealth that they're creating. So for instance, people who work minimum wage, it's discouraging because first of all, the minimum wage is not livable. And yet you're a super, super important part of the capitalist machine, which is why strikes continue to be a very powerful way of disrupting capitalism. So when workers decide to stop working, the whole machine stops. And who suffers? The owners, the CEOs because they're the ones who aren't, you know, getting paid or the shareholders are also like suffering. So we see here how important workers are in the system but they're not getting the money. They're not getting wealth, they're not experiencing social mobility and this is where also like racism and gender and all these intersectional layers also interfere cuz like if you're a person of color if you come from like a poor neighborhood with less opportunities this is affecting black and brown people predominantly overwhelmingly the idea of pull yourself up by the bootstraps like just think better thoughts or you know do these spells or do certain things and like pay this coach multiple thousands of dollars to pull yourself out of this Bind and out of poverty and out of this like generational and systematic and systemic poverty. That's not possible. Instead, what I would want us to look at is resources. Like we live in capitalism and capitalism for people to succeed, it requires resources. There is no such thing as the self-made man or woman. People need help to move forward and to succeed. So why aren't we talking about resources? Instead, coaches who are talking about like the manifestation, manifest your wealth, they're taking your money. Probably money that folks don't even have. I've heard tons of stories of people having very, very little money in the bank, like barely, barely enough to put food on the table. And yet they'll find like circuitous ways to pay for coaches programs, like get a credit card or like they'll be encouraged by the coach to open a new account or you know things like that because they're promising them that once they do they'll make 10 times back that money
0: and I think another important layer here is that they target women because women don't have any capital at all because they've been in the home for so long and women don't have power money is power in our society and women don't have that and so of Of course, they're going to prey on women to help in the sake of empowerment, you know. But, like, what is an actual way that we can empower women to make money? What is a way that we can empower a distribution of wealth? What does that society look like? That's a great question. So,
1: first of all, helping women imagine what it is that they actually want to do. The thing is, like, I think what's so attractive with spirituality and like new age is that it's the possibility of being able to have a business while remaining at home. Because, you know, maybe folks have children or they're the primary caretaker. There's a lot of limitations already around like what that looks like. So if you are the primary caretaker, like your hands are tied in like what you can do. If your finances don't allow like going back to school so that you can get new training, like school is prohibitively expensive. That shouldn't be especially like professional degrees, like certificates and like masters that will actually allow you to increase your value on the job market. Because that's what capitalism is. It's like, how valuable are you? So you have to create value. And what's attractive with spirituality is that it feels like the startup costs are pretty low. Like all you need is to be savvy and to have a website or not even, like people can just Venmo you for a service. And a lot of these services that are being offered are kind of connected to who you already are, so you don't have to go out of your way or do something else or get a different skill. Like it already is who you are. So if it's like, oh, if you like bake at home, or if you cast spells, or if you connect to spirits, or if you read tarot, these are things that you've probably done privately for yourself and become like more advanced at that. And then you're like, oh, okay, I'm just gonna offer that and like maybe make a career. And you see people, the people that have like thousands of followers online, they're the ones who are successful. And they're modeling that life that actually feels kind of flexible. Like I get why that life is attractive because you have a lot of flexibility. And there's the whole thing about like, let's create passive income. So all these coaches out there, like making so much money, teaching other people to make passive income. (laughs) Of course, it's attractive because it's like this promise of making so much with like relatively little effort or like effort that's kind of Flexible. You know, it's not as rigid as having to like do a night school or like leave your children and go to school during the day or having to ask your partner to do more responsibility in the home and to challenge like a potentially patriarchal or heteronormative gender role distribution in the home. So it kind of works around all these things. So, how to empower women, it starts with expanding our imagination and Giving ourselves the time to explore like what is it that I want to do and what does it look like? What do the resources look like that I need to do that? And it's hard to offer like bigger answers because it's like, well, folks need support. So it's like if you don't have a supportive home or a supportive family, if you don't have like the income, like there's all these limitations that need to be taken into account.
0: Yeah. And something else, I think I don't want people to like misinterpret my Views on manifestation because I do think manifesting is a powerful thing. And I do think that there is a level of like magic and like spirituality and divinity. And I mean, manifesting, praying, like whatever you want to call it, it's like this putting this hope out into the universe about something. And I do think that that's powerful. Like, I have seen in my own life that when I start to get imaginative and I start to dream, about what my life could be with maybe the resources that I have available right now, things sometimes just like fall into place that like, I was just like, oh, one day I was just like, I would like to leave Salt Lake City. I would like to move out to LA. And one day a friend just was like, hey, my friend's having a birthday party in LA. Do you want to come? And I was like, oh yeah, I guess I do want to come, you know? And I think that there is a level of dreaming and imagination that empowers us to just like see. And I think this is kind of going back to what I was kind of talking about with white women's power. I know that this is very specific to me as a white woman, but I do have power and I'm not going to deny that. The color of my skin gives me privileges that are not available to other people. And what am I going to do with that? Am I going to use that to empower other people and create a society where we all are equitable or am i going to use that to continue to perpetuate this state of capitalism and white supremacy like i don't know i just think white women are in this place and i think we're in this place in history where like as a collective white women need to figure out what are you going to do with this power and recognize also the i don't know There's so many nuances Mm -hmm. to it. There
1: are so many nuances. And that's also like, I love to inhabit the messiness of the conversation. And sometimes it's good to just linger in that and embrace the murkiness because... Trying to make something so complicated, clear and simplified can sometimes lead to dogmatism or categorical thinking, either or thinking. And it can be all these things. For instance, when you're saying that manifesting, praying can be a good thing. Like, yeah, I don't disagree with that. I think imagination and dream work is really important to open ourselves up to different possibilities. Like when I was trapped in grad school, the first step that I needed to do was to imagine not being there. And I was so stuck that I couldn't imagine. And spirituality was helpful. Like these tarot sessions, these astrology sessions, they were helpful in helping me, inviting me to imagine a possibility that I had never imagined before. And that was the first step to actually making the plan happen, making my exit plan happen. I had to imagine it first. I had to be with that. And then, okay, how do I make that happen? What's the next step? I think I see The trouble that we see emerging with manifestation is when there's that language of causality and of guarantee of like, if you think it and if you think it hard enough and if you think it in these specific ways, it will happen because when it doesn't happen, there is the possibility of blaming ourselves or feeling like, oh, we did it wrong. Or maybe my subconscious is not ready because I thought I was ready, but it isn't ready. So we end up like holding ourselves back and it creates this idea that I'm not deserving of this thing that I want. and I don't want to go after it. So it actually kind of might even make us shrink and shrink ourselves when we're already as women so shrunken and we're taught and socialized not to take up as much space. And also institutions make us smaller, like we get paid less, like we get promoted less, you know. And this is, of course, like even more accentuated for non-white women. So you have that. And what manifestation this, auto interpretation of how life is going is it brings it back and puts the onus on ourselves that we didn't do it hard enough. And I think that can cause even more self-blame and self-shrinking. And is that really empowering? So I love the idea of manifesting for the purpose of dream work. I think I see a lot of definitions of manifestation out there, but the one that I use and that I critique is the one that is like coming from Phineas Quimby and Atkinson and that gets recycled and reused by like The Secret or Neville Goddard. You know, these people, their emphasis is on that causality. It's on that promise. It's on that guarantee that if you think it, if you unlock your subconscious brain, if you unlock your subconscious mind, you will get these things or like, you know, sometimes we see that language around like the inability to receive. The thing that you want wants to come to you, but you're the one blocking it because you're unable to receive it. Genuinely, I don't know how helpful or constructive or empowering this language is because what does it even mean that like you're not ready to receive it? What I'm hearing is basically saying you're not deserving and it feels very religious adjacent, religious repackaging of like, you need to be better. You need to be purer. You need to behave better. You need to pray harder. And like, That does not accurately reflect the reality of things for women, for people of color, for black and indigenous folks who experience so many barriers already. So like if you don't get that promotion at your job or if you don't get the dream job that you wanted or if you don't get the salary you want, the manifestation language can very much, like we can slip into blaming ourselves when it's not your fault. Like you are amazing. You're double, you're doing double what people are doing, but you're still not getting appreciated because you're a woman in the workplace. That's far more likely possibility than you not praying enough you know so not you specifically but like yeah you know us like women that's only my my only concern with that manifestation emphasis on like the hyper individualistic framework but as i said i love what you said about imagination is a very very important step and it's an important step for liberation for self-love every single revolution has had a dream work self love portion. If we think of the feminist movement, like a lot of the activist collective mobilization work is in tandem with self love and like loving ourselves as women because patriarchy says women are lesser than. So part of the work is to say, no, actually, we are deserving. We're awesome. We want to take up space. But it has to go hand in hand with the bigger collective picture because otherwise
0: it can slip into something else completely. That summarized everything that I was hoping to come from this interview. What do you personally imagine and like a dream for the society? What does that look like for you?
1: That's such a good question. And it's a a really big question.
0: I guess it depends. Like, are we talking about spirituality? We're talking about capitalism. Let's talk about spirituality and capitalism. Just like what does a healthy spiritual Mm. life Within a capitalist society look like? I
1: feel like for me, healthy spirituality has to involve people talking about capitalism. It has to involve centering BIPOC voices. And I actually see some very great healers, decolonial healers out there that use the tools that we're talking about, like astrology and tarot or ancestor connection or goddess rituals or spell work to encourage and invite a reconnection to self. Because we are so disconnected from ourselves and burnt out and tired and confused and disoriented. And I think spirituality can be a very powerful tool of reconnection, of empowerment, of having people love themselves. I don't think it's the only tool, but it's one of those tools. So I want to see folks like really take up space, especially folks who have been historically marginalized I want to see them take up space in the decolonial and spiritual industry. I want more representation. Like I want to see different kinds of people practicing their spirituality and sharing their spirituality. I want people to be specific also with where they're coming from, what their lineages are, what their connections are, as opposed to trying to be universal and kind of like co-opt traditions that aren't theirs. I would love for us to be more connected. So when we have a platform, we're sharing that platform to uplift like BIPOC voices, to call out also the colonial cultural appropriation that happens. It's very widespread in spirituality. But instead, what we see, the accounts that get the most action are usually white women, you know, like Burning Sage and Palo Santo with a retreat in Costa Rica. And they're all like conventionally pretty and very thin and straight and heteronormative and they're encouraging this very gendered existence for women to be like domestic and to be at home and connected to nature and like this is going to speak to a very 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 specific subset of the population and it leaves out everyone else. And what it does is that it reinforces a dominant narrative. And so it contributes to the erasure of all these other people who exist differently. So I'm mostly concerned about like trans women, like trans folks in general, who are already under attack in the US and their rights are being taken away and dehumanized completely. And so this idea that femininity and that we see portrayed in spirituality, it's so cis and it's so connected to like womanhood, cis womanhood. We don't see anything else So it contributes to that erasure and like manifestation, I also think contributes to the erasure of like systemic oppression. So all these different spiritual frameworks need some really deep reframing, if not complete reevaluating. And until then, the danger is that spirituality can be harming more people than it is helping. It's harming in the sense that it's erasing and creating like a very specific way of existing so that if you don't fit in that mold, you feel bad about yourself. So that's one way with the queer and trans erasure and like systemic oppression erasure. And it also like creates this hyper focus, as you were saying, on wealth and like manifesting money when we should also be talking about capitalism and the trappings of capitalism. And that's not to say that wanting money is not important. We live in capitalism. Like money is essential. We need money for school. We need money for healthcare. We need money to take care of our children. We need money for everything. So I get why we need money. But does it have to come at the expense of collective well-being and helping each other and having like real important conversations about sharing the wealth, being equitable, and that like equality versus equitability? Equality doesn't always help everybody because if everyone's doing the same amount, is that really going to uplift those who've been so disadvantaged over multiple generations? And I'm still in the realm of the abstract. I'm still very like, like, you know, theoretical in the descriptions of what I'm saying. But in terms of like my vision is I want to see more queer people in spirituality. I want to see anti-capitalist people be spiritual. I want to see like plus size bodies that are like taking up space. I want to see like tarot and astrology for how to connect with each other and astrology for mutual aid. You know, like these are things that I think are so important. And In a way, it's almost like saying, like, let's create a spiritual space that is aligned with our progressive values. Because the thing is, right now, spirituality, it's like almost like a beeline highway to the alt-right because of how it's set up. The spaces are so apolitical. No one's talking about race. No one's talking about gender. No one's talking about politics at all. And so this becomes like a really comfortable space for people who don't want to be political and people who don't want to have those conversations. And that kind of like already puts us in a neoconservative framework where like it, it becomes like uncomfortable or negative or people get shut down for talking about like what's going on with the world. So oftentimes these spaces do not examine the racial dynamics in the space. They do not examine the cultural appropriation. They don't examine how they're like taking from indigenous folks and not honoring them and just continuing to perpetuate their erasure. And then you have folks who try to speak up and they get shut down. So we want to create an environment where it's democratic, people can speak up and the practices themselves are already healthy and not rooted in this appropriation and this erasure. And we're not saying things that are going to clearly negate the experiences of BIPOC and women. These are all guidelines that I'm looking for when I follow healers or when I promote healers on my page. They must have that approach. Otherwise, I wouldn't be giving them a voice on my platform or telling people to go follow them. And there are folks who are doing that work out there. If you if you follow my account, you'll be able to see who I recommend and I'm sure there's like plenty more folks that I don't know of and like my job is to continue like uplifting them, finding them, connecting with them, because I myself am not in a position to tell people how to practice their spirituality. You know, I'm a teacher. I'm a theorist. I'm like in political science. So my specialty is teaching people about capitalism and decolonization and gender. I'm not practicing it from a spiritual, like I have a personal spiritual practice. If you look at my account, I'm not telling people like, oh, this is a decolonial spell. <laughs> yeah. But there will be people out there who are doing that. So I will oh. I will, will uplift those.
0: Could you share more about what courses you have available, what courses you are creating, and how people can find you and learn more from you? Yeah, of course. So
1: my primary platform is TikTok at the moment. So you can find me at It's Classic Stuff. I love talking and sharing and teaching on that platform, though I do feel sometimes a little bit limited by the short form video platform. Like I like three minutes is really hard for me to just keep it at that. So I don't know. I'm like playing with the idea of having a YouTube channel and like doing more long form videos on there. The richest, deepest, most rigorous kind of experience you'll have is my courses, my workshops. So this summer, I've taught multiple workshops, one on the intro to woo-woo capitalism. So this is the one that Kaylee, you took with me. We looked at toxic spirituality, what are some of the red flags to look out for, how to recognize it, what are the elements, what are the patterns to look out for. So this is one course that I will actually be recycling and offering as a self-paced class that you can take at any time and take on your own time. All my classes that will be on offer will come with access to a private online community for us to continue talking. And, you know, for folks who have questions, I will answer your questions on there. So it'll be like more free for us to talk on there versus TikTok. TikTok is great for comments, but it's not the best for like building connections with each other. So I think that platform is going to be really cool. So this is going to be coming up in the fall of 2022. So in a few months, I teach courses on gender where we unpack the divine feminine. We unpack the idea of embodiment and how that can contribute to trans people's erasure, queer people's erasure as well. And I also teach a workshop on decolonization because I am all about decolonizing spirituality. So you see, there's a lot of different elements to the conversation, which is why it's so hard to keep it at one element. But, you know, I have to offer classes. And for me as a teacher, like teacher one, teacher first, and then like a, like, I guess a business person second, it's always a conflict for me because like I hear business coaches saying like, you have to distill your offer. You have to keep it to like, keep it minimal, keep it to one thing. But, you know, as a teacher, I'm like, well, I want people to really have the full conversation, full discussion. So we'll see. I think what I might do is offer one class a semester that's like a rotating class because it is also a lot of work for me. It's tiring for me to teach a full workshop. So one class a semester will be rotating and then there'll be this like constant which is the woo-woo capitalism class that will be available as a soft pace, like folks can take it whenever you want. And my goal is to keep my classes as accessible as possible while still offering like the academic rigor that you would get from like a political theory course. And the politics, like my political commitments are leftist. They are progressive. I want people to think about what spirituality looks like from a leftist, progressive, decolonial perspective that can counter... That new age to All Right pipeline that we're seeing. I think a lot of folks in the spiritual world are progressive, but then they end up in spiritual spaces that kind of either make them forget or suspend their political commitments and just like put that on the back burner. And next thing you know, like you're just putting into question your entire like who you were before you were spiritual. This was my experience. I kind of like got disconnected from like my radical politics. And then I had to like
0: find my way back to it after like navigating spirituality. It can really suck you in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I find so much value. And like you said, it's so nice to just like sink into my intuition and like let that be my guide over my brain sometimes. Because I find the same thing where I'm like, I'm so in my brain right now. just turn it off and breathe and like connect to my body. And there are a lot of great tools within spirituality to teach you how to do that for yourself. I'm just really grateful that I found you on TikTok. This is exactly like the conversations that I enjoy having. And I know a lot of people do. And if you're listening to this and you want to find stuff go find her on TikTok. Do you have like a website or a newsletter or anything that people can sign up for? Yeah,
1: definitely. You can sign up for my newsletter. It's on my website, com. The newsletter is actually a really good space to stay in touch with like what's going on. I write like longer form essays and musings on there as well. So it's a good place to be in touch.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Last but not least, if you had a microphone that everyone in the world could hear, what would you say to the whole world?
1: I would say that being spiritual does not mean progressive because we often think that spirituality is counterculture and it is absolutely not. And spirituality can be super, super compatible with neoconservatism So it's very important to have a critical thinking hat on and to continue thinking critically. And that critical thinking is very empowering. It goes hand in hand with connecting to our bodies because we also in that moment of connecting to ourselves, we are also very open. And so if we're open to what other people have to say, we can just receive these things without questioning them. So it's important to stay whole and to stay connected to yourself. And then the other thing I'll say is ask yourself the question, is your spiritual community encouraging you to disconnect from yourself? Is it encouraging you or do you feel like you are at war with yourself in that space? Because you want to feel unified. You want to feel whole. You want to feel connected. You want to feel like you trust yourself. You don't want to feel like you're afraid of yourself. And if you start feeling like there's some fear mongering or some like hyper obsession with purity, or, you know, you're starting to rely on what other people have to say about you over yourself and over what you have to say, or you don't feel like you trust yourself entirely, I would invite some pause, invite some reflection, invite some critical thinking and invite some support from people who have that critical thinking lens and who have been on that journey of questioning, you know, like Kaylee, so that you could just invite that pause. I think that's important because you do not want to be in a situation where you don't trust yourself, not in a spiritual space that is claiming that, you know? So those are the two things.
0: I love (laughs) that. Thank you so much, Seth, for joining today. But I really appreciate you and your time. And I hope you know, I really do look up to what you're talking about. And I'm just excited to join more in the conversation and like take more of your courses. It's something that like I'm super passionate about myself and I'm just like so hungry for like knowledge. I know. I'm like with like people that well, I've just been so isolated for my whole life from people who think like this. And my whole life I've been like, am I crazy? Like I grew up on the ranch. Literally, I would like go dig up Native American broken pottery. And everyone else is like, cool, look at this pottery. And I'm like, wait, but like humans, this was somebody's house. Like what happened? Yeah. And like, nobody was thinking about that stuff. And I just, whenever I would bring it up, people are like, eh, don't worry about it. And I'm like, but I'm worried about
1: it. Yeah. I love that you're thinking about these things and that you are modeling that for your community. It's so, so, so important. And like keep learning and I'm here and I'm happy to continue supporting you and guiding you. I'm very, very proud of you. Like keep going, keep going on this track, keep asking questions and processing and having your podcast. And it was such a pleasure for me to be on here. I really had a lot of fun chatting with you. And I hope that it wasn't too meandering of a conversation. Oh, I was <laughs>
0: enthralled the whole time. I was just like, oh, okay, okay, good. good. Yeah. Oh I love it. Good. Thank
1: you. Um, Thanks Lili. So nice. Thank you. Bye-bye. Stay in touch. Ciao.